from the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Olson. And I'm your other host, Yvonne Villarreal. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. How are you doing this week, Yvonne? Mark, I'm so excited. I got my second dose, so I'm feeling like I'm on my way to going outside and not feeling a lot of fear. How are you? Are you relieved to have the Oscars behind you? Well, they're not fully behind us yet. I invited our colleagues, Mary McNamara and Glenn Whipp, to come and share some of their thoughts on the the show and the awards. And so we're going to be kind of really wrapping things up in just a moment. But you've got the interview this week, Yvonne. Who are you talking to? Yes, I spoke with Cynthia Erivo, who played Aretha Franklin in Genius Aretha, the National Geographic anthology series. It's available now to stream on Hulu if you missed it the first time around. And it's about the queen of souls, life and work. And, you know, when I spoke with Cynthia, she talked about how she didn't get to perform one of Aretha's most popular songs, Respect. But she told me why that didn't bother her. Because I think there's a really wonderful thing about being able to introduce people to other songs that she did. Being able to do something like, um, don't play that song for me. None of exact memories. I didn't know that she had done that song. And introducing people to, to Border Song, which originally is an Elton John song. Like finding those gems that we know, but don't realize that we know. And she was a, a part of bringing that to us. I thought it was so exciting to hear how Cynthia was inspired by so much of Aretha's own ethos, the way that she tried to shed light on marginalized people and and bring lesser known stories to to light. What did you think of talking with her, Yvonne? Yeah, I mean, she told me how she's using her music and platform as a way to do that with her own activism. It was just so enriching to hear from her and to learn about all the ways she sort of gets into her characters. Like there's a bit where she talks about the perfume and I won't give too much away, but the way that scent has helped her find characters I found interesting. Yeah, it's so funny. She's one of those people where she had so much success and was so famous on Broadway before she started doing film and television. It's funny that like once she had this whole other career before she sort of entered our world. And it's interesting to see the way that she's navigating and growing and using the space as she's kind of moved into film and television. Yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. And we'll be right back with Cynthia and reactions to the Oscars after this quick break. Hi, this is Harry Littman, LA Times legal columnist and host of the Talking Feds podcast a roundtable discussion that brings together prominent former government officials, journalists, and special guests. This year, we're covering everything you need to know about the presidential transition with guests that include Valerie Jarrett, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and Congressman Jamie Raskin. So tune in everywhere that you find podcasts. Well, my conversation with Cynthia Erivo is up next. But first, let's talk Oscars with Mark, Glenn Whip, and Mary McNamara. Take it away, guys. And so I'm here with Times columnists Glenn Whip and Mary McNamara to talk about the Academy Awards. And I'm just going to sort of say right off the top that I actually, you know, even with some production hiccups and the 
strange ending that we'll we'll talk about. I actually really enjoyed the show. I thought that it was more intimate than usual. It had an energy that I enjoyed and that I thought that a lot of the changes and things they tried to do differently for me, at least as like a film fan and a person tuning in really worked. Mary, I, first of all, I know you were watching the show on a plane, which I'm interested <laughs> in hearing about, but what were your impressions of, of some of the changes and, and how the night went? I agree with you about the intimacy level. And it definitely, especially at the beginning, it evoked sort of, not that I was there because I'm not that old, but like the early Oscar events, you know, you see the pictures of people in ballroom and it was, you know, much smaller, not quite as small as it was on Sunday. But so, yeah, there was definitely a supper club feel to it. And I felt like, you know, I mean, hats off to them for doing it at all, considering you know, the obstacles, not just logistical, but like emotional and psychological, you know, people are just starting to come out of their shells. Even people who are vaccinated are feeling, you know, very tentative. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was the Oscars, you know, (laughs) it's like, and no matter how many times producers promise something new and different, it's a bunch of awards that are being handed out. And that is what happened on Sunday night. It had the same highs and lows, I felt, like that any Oscars did. And Glenn, we sort of have to have two conversations here. One is about the show, and the other is about the actual awards that they handed out. But it does seem like this year in particular, those two things sort of interacted or interrelated in a way that they typically maybe don't. Like, what what were some of your impressions of the show and the awards? Yeah, it's really hard to remember anything good about the show because the ending was the worst ending in the history of the Oscars. <laughs> so any goodwill of Regina King's power walk down the red carpet at the beginning of the of the broadcast, the the lovely shot of Daniel Kaluuya's mom, you know, reacting. Did he really say that about, you know, us having sex and, and all that good stuff? The intimacy, which I loved, it just like all got washed away in that horrible, no good ending of a ceremony, which, I mean, it just obviously didn't go as planned in a hundred different ways. They figured Chadwick Boseman was going to win that Best Actor Oscar, and that was the award they were going to play the show off on. And when that didn't happen... They really had the worst person imaginable on stage to deal with it, Joaquin Phoenix, who is kind of socially awkward. I don't think he really wanted to be there in the first place. He certainly acted that way. And then he kind of mumbled and shuffled off the stage and, whoa, the Oscars are over. You know, kind of like the award season that will never end ended jarringly and abruptly, you know, I, I love Anthony Hopkins and the father, but I don't know. The acting Oscars are never really about the best. They're about a hundred different things. And to pass up the opportunity to give Chadwick Boseman an Oscar feels a little messed up. But isn't it one thing about the Academy? And it's something you almost have to have a begrudging respect or admiration for is the fact that they refuse to play by the narrative. Like you can't make that group of people vote the way that everyone thinks they should. That like, and in particular, I think when it feels like there's a something they should do 
that's when they kind of refuse to do it. You can't tell the Academy what to do. Mary, what was your impression of that ending, and, and in particular, this expectation that Chadwick Boseman would win, and then the sort of strange, you know, surprise of Anthony Hopkins winning, even though he had obviously recently won the BAFTA, had kind of been on a streak, and so it shouldn't have been that much of a surprise to producers, and yet it really was. It wasn't a surprise to me. I mean, and Glenn and I had a brief conversation about this. As soon as I saw The Father, I was like, how do you beat that performance? And yes, Glenn's right. There are many different factors that go into it. (laughs) Listening to Glenn talk, I was thinking, I think maybe it's like the years of being a television critic that I just don't put as much emphasis on the finale. (laughs) It's like, because you can love a show and have it be, have a terrible ending. And absolutely, the show had a terrible ending. And it was absolutely unnecessary because even if, you know, they believed with every fiber of their being that Chadwick Boseman was going to win, they didn't know it. And there was a very good chance that Anthony Hopkins was going to win because it was a performance of a lifetime and he's 83 years old. And so, even though they had this very strict, if you're not live somewhere, you don't get to make a speech. He's 83 years old and he lives in Wales. It's like, you know, I feel like an exception should have been made and somebody should have said, hey, Sir Anthony, do you want to like just tape a little something just in case? Also, P.S. Academy, Anthony Hopkins has been very active on Instagram throughout the entire pandemic, which has been one of the silver linings of the pandemic. But you know, he he gave a very touching, very short speech in which he did pay tribute to Chadwick Boseman. Um, and that would have been a lovely way to go out with him speaking with the glory of Wales behind him. I don't think anybody would have felt like, oh, that's unfair. I had to haul my ass to wherever or stay up till four o'clock in the morning like the people in Berlin did or whatever. You know, and also I feel like, yes, people did want to Uh, and expected from this Oscars a chance to mourn Chadwick Boseman. But I think the mistake they made was not to have that be a separate thing or not have it be a bigger part of the memoriam video, which had its own problems. I mean, it just was too fast and it was uneven and it was just kind of crazy, especially given the amount of loss and grief that everyone has experienced during this particular year. That, to me, was a big screw-up. And you could have had a very lovely, you know, special tribute to um, Chadwick Boseman in there that would have then relieved the pressure. I think that the best picture should always be the last award because it makes sense. (laughs) You know, actors and actresses contribute to the picture, but the picture is the whole. But um, yes, I mean, I felt like it was a terrible ending But that didn't, I mean, I I feel like it doesn't make it the worst Oscars ever. I I love that you're saying this. I I can love a show, but hate the ending. I'm just totally having a flashback to Game of Thrones. Right, exactly. (laughs) And your your inexplicable love. I love Game of Thrones. Yes. I, I feel like they punted, you know, but, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't remove the pleasures of all that went before it. But it taints it. Does it? I mean, I guess, yes, it does as a story in that particular one. It does taint it. But I also, you know, I mean, every Oscars has its own issues. And this was that issue. But I think it was a huge unforced error. You know, it was hubris. It was like they felt like when they said, oh, this is going to be like a movie. And I wrote this. It's like, 
you know, no, it's a television show. It's a live television show. And that is very different from a movie in many ways, especially in the fact that there's only so much you can control about it. You can't go back and go, okay, we're going to do another take or we're going to have to rejigger this script. It's like, you know, you have to uh, have your wits about you. That's why, you know, producers come back time and again, because it is a very specific beast. And when you let a director, who would have imagined a director would have hubris? Who would have imagined (laughs) a director could have thought he could control the whole thing and script it exactly like he thought he could? No, I mean, I just think that if if it is true, and it seems to be from all appearances, that they were sort of building the show around the belief that they knew who was going to win, that's just stupid. <laughs> Glenn, we're, t- of course, referring to Steven Soderbergh, one of the producers of the show, along with Stacey Scheer and Jesse Collins. And people kind of lost their minds just before, you know, the acting awards were, were given out because of the fact they gave out Best Picture, you know, earlier. Glenn, when that happened, what did you think? What was your response to kind of in the moment to what was obviously such a big change to the show? Well, I mean, fortunately, we we had the running order of the show, so it it didn't come as a surprise. My reaction was just one of um, praising the higher being, whatever higher being you worship, because I had written a pre-story, an essay about Nomadland and how it won Best Picture. And then Nomadland lost cinematography, it did not win the Adapted Screenplay Oscar, and the only Oscar it had won was Director. And I was starting to, as my wife would tell you, get a little anxious about um, having to write on the fly. Now, I did write another couple of essays, too, but it was looking weird. Like, nothing was kind of going as expected. It's a weird year, so why would we expect it, too? But then I just started having these dark thoughts like Promising Young Woman was going to win Best Picture or Sound of Metal was going to win Best Picture. They had already won some awards. So my reaction to that whole thing was relief, also um, happiness, because I thought Nomadland was the best of the nominated films. Yeah, and relief that Trial of Chicago 7 somehow didn't win Best Picture, which would have been awful in a kind of a green book sort of way. I just want to add one thing about the best picture thing is one of the drawbacks of watching it on a plane was that I had a flashback to the Sopranos finale in that I thought somehow my screen had broken and that I had missed the acting awards. And I didn't have access to Twitter or to the internet. So it was like, you know, swearing, which is always weird when you have ear... (laughs) So the plane is completely silent and suddenly this crazy woman is going, shit, you know? Anyway... And then also I want to be sure to get both of your impressions simply about the location of the the ceremony this year. They had it at Los Angeles' Union Station, which was a big change from the, you know, Dolby Theater, which was specifically built for the Academy Awards. And on the one hand, it was a beautiful location, the way they had tricked it out to have both the sort of the pre-show sort of cocktail feel and then the supper club uh, aspect of what they did inside. But then you kind of have to take a step back and remind yourself, as we've reported about at the Times, that thousands of commuters were displaced and inconvenienced by this for the better part of a month. And it, it seems in some ways like a perfect encapsulation of Hollywood and maybe the Academy itself that it, the sort of level of 
kind of a willful obliviousness and self-regard that it takes to think that all these thousands of other people are supposed to care about your little show. So Mary, what did you think of just the location and like just the logistics of how it worked out for, for the show and also what that maybe means that they had they had made these big decisions? I thought Union Station looked amazing. I totally understand why they did it in terms of the aesthetics. I mean, you're not going to put 200 people into a theater that was built for I don't know how many thousand. I mean, that would just, the the echoing cavernness of it all would have been very off-putting. That said, there was a COVID testing site there that was interrupted, which just is even worse than interrupt. I mean, the Oscars always interrupt some sort of major thoroughfare, whether it's Hollywood Boulevard, you know, or even, you know, back when it was at the Shrine downtown. I mean, it, it it's always a gridlock situation for a couple of weeks. But to, to like to make it more difficult to get a COVID test seems to me like sort of, uh, you know, missing the whole point of the thing. I think it was Carolina Miranda who wrote, why didn't they have it at the Music Center? Which seems like it would have been a kind of a perfect alternative. You know, you still would have had downtown gridlock, obviously, but you wouldn't be interrupting an actual hub of transportation. And it seemed like it was perfectly set up. I mean, it was lovely to look at. But again, you know, as so many things with art, you do have to balance the personal cost uh, with the aesthetic. Glenn, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, the Oscars are a profound inconvenience to my life every year. So (laughs) now... Unfortunately, thousands and thousands of other people know how I feel. Mary talked about kind of evoking early Oscar ceremonies, which you can see on the Academy's website. And it had that really nice supper club, intimate feel. Sometimes a little too supper clubby, like when they gave out Best Actress, I could barely see Carrie Mulligan. She was way back in the shadows and didn't seem to mind. The The lighting was, you know, ambient for good and for bad. And I actually want to ask, to talk to the two of you about Best Actress in particular, because as much as the conversation has been revolving around Best Actor, I actually found the Best Actress, you know, was a race that people, there was a lot of uncertainty about. It was That was considered the most sort of hotly contested of the categories in the Academy voting for Frances McDormand over Viola Davis or Carrie Mulligan. I'm just curious what you think about that, Glenn, in in particular, the fact that the Academy had an opportunity to make Viola Davis the first black woman to win two Oscars. And she has an Oscar for supporting actress, does not have one for lead actress. There does seem to be some sort of hang up that the Academy has in giving people of color lead actor and lead actress. What were your thoughts on Frances McDormand in particular getting that award last night? I mean, sure. And you and you saw Halle Berry at the ceremony. She is the only black woman to have ever won lead actress. And I had predicted Davis would win. And I felt even more certain of that early in the ceremony when they showed her on camera or mentioned her on camera and she got a huge ovation in that Union Station audience. I went, oh yeah, they love her. I kind of thought that Viola Davis had reached a point in her career, and I still believe that she has, where she is just so highly regarded and she's on kind of a Meryl Streep, Frances McDormand level. But they ended up going with the established 
firmly established legend of Francis McDormand, who I love and adore. And I, the other thing that surprised me, I guess, was that typically the acting Oscars go to these huge showy performances. And there's long stretches of Nomadland in which Francis McDormand doesn't say a word, which I think are beautiful stretches of the film. She conveys so much emotion just through facial expressions. And Viola Davis gives this very big theatrical performance as the singer in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Kind of thought that would be the way that the Oscars would go because that's how the Oscars typically go. But it was, you know, like you said, Mark, I mean, very competitive category, thrillingly competitive. I just, more Oscars ceremonies with more tension. I, I, that was, that was one nice thing about last night. Mary, did you have thoughts on Best Actress? I mean, it's really weird this Oscars season because like I haven't been able to talk to really anybody. You know, there's been none of the office conversations and Glenn and I have had like, I think one whole conversation about the Oscars before, you know, I think even after the nominations came out. And I had No Man Land on my dance card. The The film was amazing and and so unique. And I felt like Frances McDormand's performance, I mean, she carried the film like she and and the sky, basically, <laughs> the horizon, carried that film. And so, you know, you really get into a situation, especially as Glenn said, how competitive it was, where you're comparing apples to oranges. You know, I mean, like, how do you choose between those two things? I mean, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom didn't get a Best Picture nomination. That would have been uh, unique as well. But to have a Best Actor or Actress win for a, a, a movie that was not up for Best picture. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was a genuine ensemble piece. So, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. You know, Judy Dench won for playing Queen Elizabeth for five minutes, but that was supporting. But Frances McDormand was that movie. So if that was the movie that you thought was the best movie of the year, which clearly the Academy did, there was no way you couldn't give it to Frances McDormand because that would have been outrageous. And in fact, if they had done it more traditionally and Frances McDormand had won, I still wouldn't have been sure that Nomadland would win. But once Nomadland won, there was no way she was not going to win because that would have just, I mean, it wouldn't have made any sense. I thought Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was a really fine film and I was surprised it did not get a Best Picture nomination. And maybe if it had, that would have changed things. But not for me. I thought Nomadland was the best film I've seen in many years, not just this year. So, but I am a Francis McDormand devotee. I don't know. It just captured something particularly this year with all of the, you know, controversies around it and whether Amazon was portrayed too kindly and, you know, whether poverty was romanticized. It just sort of captured that feeling of bobbing isolation that I feel like a lot of us have been dealing with during this year. And then one thing I want to be sure to ask you both is I was so shocked that while the show was going on, the sort of response online, people were very upset by the lack of clips, that the fact that the show itself didn't feature that many, you know, big acting showcase clips. And I personally, I always thought that was one of the things that I always find to be a bit of a drag and you don't always feel you don't really need them. Apparently, there are people who tune into the Oscar show who have not seen the movies or aren't that familiar with the movies and need the sort of reminder or primer of what they are. Glenn, what did you think of the lack of clips one way or the other? And were you surprised that it was something that people responded to so strongly? 
Well, it's kind of weird in a way that, I mean, this Oscar ceremony was supposed to remind people about the power of movies and why they love movies, why movies matter. And so kind of an odd year not to show any clips from movies, kind of an odd year not to like show people why movies matter by showing clips from the best work in film this year. It's almost like the producers just said, well, you know, uh, they, they accepted the conventional wisdom that nobody's seen these movies. So why bother showing them to them? Mary, did you have thoughts on that? I love the clips. I, th- I think there should always be clips. I think there should be more clips. I think there should be clips like with sound editing. And, you know, that is something that there have been more and less in different Oscar telecasts. And, you know, they showed them for the best picture. Was that the only thing they showed them for? They did them for the feature categories. So like animated film, foreign language, and then feature. Right. No, I mean, I think that they, you know, one of the things that the Oscars is supposed to do, one of the things is to be an advertisement for the movies, no matter what year you're in. Because no matter what year you're in, most people will not have seen all of the movies. And so it's important to show them, you know, to give them a reason to maybe go watch them. So yeah, I think that was probably not the best move on the part of the producers. (laughs) And now just to kind of wrap up this conversation about the awards this year, if one were to make the two of you producers of the show, I'd be curious to know what what is the main thing you would sort of tackle? What's Mary, what's one thing you'd want to fix if you produce the Oscars? Oh my goodness. I have so many things. I think I would, you know, like just try to embrace what it is and not try to make it something that it isn't. You know, it's an award show. Um, I remember one year they did this little bit where they sort of explained what all of the jobs were. And like, I thought that was fascinating. This year, they gave a lot of information about the the nominees, how they came to their careers. And that was interesting. But I would have like rather known, you know, what was the weirdest thing that happened during the making of this movie? Like anything you can do to shed light on the craft of movie making, I think will make it more a more interesting show. And I don't think they do that enough. I think they're, they, they feel like they almost have to compensate for the fact that, you know, some of these are technical awards and you may not find them interesting. So we're going to tell a bunch of jokes and then we're going to present it. And it's like, just explain what these people do. And like, like that's fascinating. Um, But maybe I'm, you know, I am an entertainment journalist. I have a bias. Glenn, what about you? I mean, at the, at the risk of leaning into Mary's accusation of me being kind of cranky, on this podcast. Um, I, I mean, I, the Oscars will defeat anyone who tries to produce them. It's just, it's, it's going to be a show of a few victories and probably a lot of defeats. The, the last two years, they haven't had a host. And what a thankless job hosting an award show. I hope they can find somebody to maybe come back and host next year. I think about the end of this year's show and I wonder if there was a host who had a little improv background, a little, you think it back to the La La Land Moonlight Best Picture announcement fiasco. Jordan Horowitz, the La La Land producer, saved the day on that. But Kimmel also, Jimmy Kimmel also came out on stage and started ribbing Warren Beatty and and he kind of like took a little bit of the the awfulness out of the of, of the moment. I think a host, a host can do a lot of things. I'd love to see them 
Regina King could have been a host last night. I'd love to see them find somebody who um, who would take that job on. Well, Glenn, Mary, I thank the both of you for uh, joining us to uh, talk about the, the Oscars today. Thank you, Mark. Happy to do it. Glenn, go take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and now, here's Yvonne's conversation with Cynthia Arrivo. Cynthia, it's a pleasure having you. Hi. Hi. Good to meet you. Hi. I'm scared to even ask how your day is going because I feel like you've probably already run like 10 miles, right? Like, I don't want to feel this much shame so early in the day. <laughs> Not even. There was no time to run 10 miles because I had, um, I literally just got in from LA. I flew to London. I'm filming something here in London. So I've got off a 10 hour flight, then unpacked, and now I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> but I do, I am definitely looking at my Peloton that's opposite me because I made sure that when I got here, I could get my workouts and whatnot done. Yeah. I mean, you you are known for your fitness regimens. You once did back-to-back shows of The Color Purple after doing a half marathon, which just blows my mind. Did, yeah. Did, did, do you develop a specific health and wellness routine for each project you take on? Or did you have any sort of specific one for Genius? Um, for Genius, I was pelotoning and running on and off. So I do one day on the peloton. I do the next day running. I do one day on the peloton, the next day running. I would intensify the peloton, like the bike riding uh, situation, maybe like on the weekend. So I do a 90 minute instead of doing a 30 or a 45. And as the week would progress, I do a longer run um, just because I wanted to keep my mind and body sort of ready and working. And my voice works when my body is warm. My voice works better when my body is being taken care of. And I was um, eating really well. I had a meal plan that was working with me. It was an amazing guy called Chef Deuce who created really beautiful vegan meals that I could just take with me to work. Because I learned on my very first film that crafty is the devil. And uh, <laughs> when you eat, when you when you get to the set, there's crafty and it has all the good and terrible things you <laughs> you could possibly want. And, and you fall into eating all of that stuff if you don't have um, the prep with you, if you don't have your own bits and pieces. So I would always take like a packed lunchbox with me and I have my fruit in it, I'll have my meals, I'll have my snacks. So I never felt like I was wanting for anything. But yeah, I was really specific about what I was doing, making sure that I was hydrating in the right way, making sure that I had the right supplements. I was taking vitamins every day, all of those things. Now I've got a lot to do. And I think in the next couple of months, I'm going to be flying and and working on in different spaces. So again, it's like intensifying how I take care of my body. And I think I've got a, a really physical role coming up soon as well. So I have to train specifically for that at some point too. Yeah. So disciplined. I mean, do you have a favorite Peloton instructor? Are you a Cody girl? I have a couple favorites. Tunde is one of my favorites. Alex Toussaint is a favorite. Robin Ozon is a favorite as well. Yeah. Hmm. Well, let's get into genius some more. I mean, before the series, what was your relationship to Aretha's music? I mean, I know for me, the presence of her just feels like it's always been there. I can't even pinpoint when I first heard her. Yeah, I, I I feel like the first time I heard her, I'm and I've said it before, I think I was n- nine and I was in the car with my mom. Uh, there's a radio station in London called Magic FM and it plays such an eclectic group of music. So Aretha came on this one day when we were going to school and I think it was Think First 
And then she came on again with Annie Lennox. It was sisters are doing it for themselves. And I just remember thinking I hadn't heard a voice like that before and something about her voice had connected with me. And I think it was the idea that this one voice was able to do those two different songs, those two different types of music and still connect. And ever since then, it, it's always been a part of my vocabulary, I guess. I've I've done a lot of her music. In, like right now, when I've had the chance to sing with orchestras, when I've had the chance to do gigs, I... I sing her music and I listen to her a lot. There are songs that are, she's always part of my playlist. And, you know, I think I learned what it was to communicate an emotion or a feeling or a, a mood or a story through song by listening to her. Um, and so she really is sort of like part of the tapestry of the music that I, I want to make and the music that I create. Yeah. Well, what kind of preparation do you do for a person who has such a storied history? I mean, like what books, what video footage, what albums were key for you? I was watching a lot of video and I was watching, uh, listening to a lot of music. I was watching mainly interviews because I felt like they were really interesting to see the way she would react with a person that she didn't quite know. There was an interview that she was doing, I think, about sparkle an interview about sparkle i remember she was wearing and i love this outfit and it's probably because i love the outfit she had this sort of like bowl cut ginger auburn hair and she had this brown and white patterned crop top and long skirt and i just thought how rare to see her in a crop top it's like that's such a cool choice to wear and i just remember whenever i watched interviews from the like the late 60s into the 70s she was really quiet in her interviews she made people come into her and then towards the 80s and the 90s she started having more fun you know she would play jokes and she'd like laugh with the interviewer there's one in the interview where she I think she's in pink and she she's playing at the piano and getting this interviewer to sing along to her playing and I used to watch how she would make the interviewer sort of almost lean in there's this really cool footage of her being a guest on a game show and all of her answers are like yes no answers but it's really about how she how she says a yes or no the interviewer asks her about whether or not she is uh I think it's like a tongue-in-cheek ironic question like are you a star and she goes well yes there's just this demure come hither almost way of speaking to people that makes you come in because she doesn't have to project. She makes you come towards her, you know, and having, having learned about what was happening in that space, her trying to sort of figure out how to make her music, what felt right for her, how to make her music speak to the times that she was going through and also trying to find her space. And, and then realizing that in the late, late seventies, early eighties, that's when she decided I'm going to have fun. I'm actually going to have fun with the music that I make. And then you see the change in the interviews that she has because now she's just having fun. Um, And I watched Amazing Grace because I thought it's a really wonderful way to sort of see the dynamics and the relationships that she has, not just the music that she makes. It's a wonderful um, sort of lens on uh, her relationship to gospel music and the way it sort of grounds 
the music she makes and how connected to it she is. But it's also a really interesting look at her relationship with her father and her relationship with James Cleveland, who was a really wonderful friend. There's a moment in that documentary where when she is performing, I want to say it may be Amazing Grace that she's singing. Like the second night, he's standing by her and he he's holding her hand behind her back because it looks like she's about to take off. It looks like she's like about to levitate and she and he has her hand, like holding her hand tightly behind her back. It's a really beautiful thing to see, but it's no one else in that room would have seen it. But because of where the camera is, you can see that she's holding uh, his hand. And then it's sort of like there's moments where the smile disappears and it, she becomes slightly vacant. But when she sings, it's like electric. I watched that over and over again. I listened to um, Live at the Fillmore West. I think that's an album that she did with, I think Ray Charles is one of the guests on that album. And I love it because she speaks to the audience. She talks to them and there's like a lightness in the way she speaks to them. I love that that album actually. And then Young, Gifted and Black, because it's sort of that moment where she accesses her Afrocentricity. And I love the album cover because it's her sitting on the steps of the church with her. Actually, that's Amazing Grace. Um, that, that album cover is Amazing Grace, where she sat on the front of the church steps, I believe, with like a dashiki on, which is kind of awesome. But Young, Gifted and Black is just a really cool album where she's speaking to the times that are happening right then. It's her Black power moment. And I, I think it's really a beautiful moment for her to express how she feels about her blackness and and the way blackness at that time was being abused. And I think she often used her albums, her music to speak to what was going on. So those those are two of the favorites, to be honest. Yeah. See, I, during watching the series, I was going through the rabbit hole of looking up performances, but I didn't do the interviews. And now that you talk about like what you you sort of gleaned from those I want to go back and watch those I'm also sort of curious like what was the best piece of advice you got about playing Aretha and who was that from um I don't think anyone gave me advice about what to do when playing Aretha but I think I've been lucky enough to be able to like watch at the the hem of some amazing actors, actresses who have done incredible work. I was able to do a film with Viola Davis and I think just watching how she dives into whoever she's playing, watching Angela Bassett and and actually having the luck of playing with Courtney. Mm-hmm. And Courtney, when we were on set, was really a wonderful, I use this word space to work within because that's what he created like space, if he felt like I I was rushing or I was not taking the time I needed, he would say, just take your time. Take your time with this. You got time. And so I would. And it would just allow me to, to dig in a little deeper in spaces that needed needed that. You know, we spent a really, it was a long day and it was mostly just he and I doing a scene where she's essentially saying goodbye to him um, where he's dying. And it was just really the two of us on set that day. And he was so supportive and so open and generous 
that it allowed me to sort of really, really let go in that moment. Yeah. And by Courtney, you mean Courtney B. Vance for our listeners. Um, He plays Aretha's father. Yeah. When producers approached you about doing the series, about playing her, were you like, oh, this makes sense? Or was it an idea that's sort of hard to process? Like, do you immediately sort of want to take on the role or is there trepidation about it? I mean, so what happened was I did, I was asked on a red carpet to tell what my favorite go-to Guilty Pleasure song was. And I said that my favorite song and, and is one of my favorite songs is Ain't No Way by Aretha. And Mark uh, from Variety looks at me with the eye of like, so are you going to, you could sing some of it, aren't you? So I sing a little bit of it. And I didn't know that that footage went to Clive Davis and Brian Grazer, um, I imagine. And I then got a call from my agent, like maybe a week or two after this had happened, telling me that they had seen this footage and they think that I would be right to play Aretha. And my first thought was, how peculiar that a moment where I was just having a little fun would lead to something like this. Second was, wow. And third was, I would love the honor to be able to to tell that story. I knew that there was a film happening and I thought, well, this is really cool because now she, we get to celebrate her in a bigger way as well. We get a film and we get a series. So our heroes don't really get that very often. And I just thought, what a cool thing to happen all at once, film and, and TV about her life in this moment, because I think she's deserving of it. And I thought, I think I might be up to the challenge. You get a sense of, which I said before, responsibility. Because that's always what I feel with the characters that I play. I want to make sure that I play them fully, play them truthfully, and treat them with the grace and care that they deserve. Because when you're telling someone's story, that's what you want people to understand that this person was a human being who went through things and came out triumphantly, I believe. So yeah, it, it wasn't so much trepidation as the idea that there was a responsibility to tell a story in the right way. Yeah. I just wanted to say the few times that I have been caught singing on camera, it has led to no opportunities. <laughs> it has led to disturbing the peace notices. Like I, no doors have opened for me this way. Um, <laughs> there are a number of striking moments when you're performing as Aretha on stage in front of a crowd. And I know you know what that feels like as a theater performer and as a singer, but I imagine it's a different feeling when you're on stage being her in that mm-hmm. way. How would you describe what that sensation was like? Um it- I don't know. I don't know if I've put words to it before, to be honest. I, I I always felt like people in the space were really respectful. There's a strange thing that happens when you're singing someone else's music as them. I know this may sound very, very strange and airy-fairy, but it feels like they sort of step into the room for a second. Imagine a, 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 you're a kid in a school play and you're looking for your parent but they, they're turning up late, but they get there and they just stand at the door and they just watch. They watch from the door just to make sure everything's okay so that you know that they're there. They're watching, but it's quiet and they're far enough away for them to not distract you. 
that's what it felt like when I would sing. It felt like someone was watching just to to check. How's it going? Yeah. That gave me goosebumps. <laughs> it was an incredible gospel artist who sadly passed just after we filmed, but we got the chance to film with her, Duranese Pace, who knew Aretha and is beloved. And she was in the room whilst we were singing and doing the episode for uh, Amazing Grace. And there's nothing like having someone who, who lived it being in the room. And there's one song I had to do that I struggled with learning. And when I finally got it, it felt really, really good. It's called Never Grow Old. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I'm singing at the piano, I'm singing Never Grow Old. And Miss Pace, Mother Pace, is sat in the pews where the choir is sat, but she's by herself. She's just sitting there. Because whenever we would take a break from shooting, she would always sit. You know, she was she wasn't very well, so she would always take a take a rest and she would sit and she was sat in the pews as I was practicing rehearsing this song. And I would look over and go, Am I doing it right? She goes, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. always felt like there was someone watching, guiding. Yeah, that's what it felt like. Our nation has endured. Let's make sure the facts do, too. Pay $1 for eight weeks and get a perspective unlike anywhere else. Go to latimes.com slash subscribe. Los Angeles Times, the state of what's next. Hey, this is Andy Bernstein, Hall of Fame photographer for the NBA and host of the Legends of Sport podcast. For the past three seasons, we've spoken to icons such as Magic Johnson, Steve Kerr, Jerry West, and Sue Bird. And not just from the world of basketball, but legends of all sports, including owners, superfans, and members of the sports media. Find new episodes of Legends of Sport on the LA Times app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See, this is the type of podcast you gotta have. (laughs) How concerned were you about whether or not you sounded like Aretha? Because the thing with Aretha's voice is you feel very powerfully mm-hmm. what she's feeling as she sings. Like you feel that emotion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that's the challenge to sort of capture like how she felt when she was singing. Yeah, I think that. It's not that I was concerned about sounding like her. I was concerned about making sure that I understood the decisions that she would make when she would sing something, which is why I would take an hour or two with my vocal coach to just go through each song so that I know the reason why instead of singing, um, let's say, like a sweet morning dew, I took one look at you and it was plain to see you are my destiny. Instead of singing that, she sings, like a sweet morning dew, I took one look at you, and it was plain to see 
You are my destiny. Mom's open wide. Like, that's a different story you're telling. But if you listen on first glance, you're not, you don't hear that unless you take the time to sort of go to break down every single thing. And um, that was a real joy to sit and learn and find out the specific specificities of the choices that she was making. Because when you find those things out and you understand them and you're not having to think of that the whole time, when you get to sing it, it feels right. You know that she means those words more than she would mean it if she was singing in this other way. You know, now I know that that particular song that I was singing, You're All I Need to Get By, really is a love song. It's And it's not just an I love you song. It's a, I need you and you are the reason I'm here. Hmm. You are all I need to, to get through. Like the reason I, I get to make it this far is because of this, you, you're the, you're the reason. And I would do that for all the songs. We would do that for every single one. The breaths that she would take, the pauses that she would take. That's really what I was concerned about. Finding the essence of the sound that she would make. Because each person's instrument is very different to the next. And there are those who can mimic sound perfectly. And there are those who are really about finding the balance of sound and choice and essence. And and that's where I was trying to to be. Mm-hmm. Well, so so many of her great songs are included in the series, with the exception of Respect and a couple of her big hits. And we know there's the upcoming feature film that features Respect as a title song. But how how did you feel about not getting to perform that one, which is like one of her biggest records? I felt fine about it <laughs> because I think there's a really wonderful thing about being able to introduce people to other songs that she did. You know, being able to do something like um, "Don't Play That Song for Me," that brings back memories. I didn't know that she had done that song, and introducing people to to Border Song, which originally is an Elton John song, like finding those gems that we know but don't realize that we know, and and she she was a part of bringing that to us. I think that Respect is an incredible song and it really is part of her her legacy. But it's not the only thing that, that makes Aretha Aretha. Respect is, yes, a song, but it, that is not her song. But that's an, an ice threading song. So I think it's wonderful that it's in the film, but we don't lose anything for it not being in this in the series. Yeah. I think we gain by, by being able to give space to songs that are lesser known as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot of like music that I didn't realize that she had. So, you know, it was incredible. Yeah. Well, the series gives attention to the sort of political power of Aretha yeah. and her sort of understanding the power of her platform. You know, she used her voice as an advocate of civil rights and you've used your platform to make statements before. So how how did studying the sort of groundwork that she laid enrich you or sort of get you reflecting on your own power and purpose? I think the the special thing about Aretha is that she was unafraid to step into the, I think the duty that we all have as artists to try to reflect the times that we're living in. And I think learning that she, she did with, without apprehension. There was no sort of, oh, maybe... I don't know. I, it was just, I want to be a part of this and I want to be able to help as much as I can. I want to 
use the means that I have to help with this movement as much as I possibly can. And, and I, I think I'm encouraged by that to try to use both my music, both the work that I get involved in when it comes to acting, to try and tell the stories that might be lesser known, that are about those who are marginalized, about those who uh, deserve the spotlight, who have often gone overlooked. I just feel like I felt encouraged by it. I felt like if she at this time was brave enough to do that work, then then I also can can do the same. Yeah. Well, we can't talk about Aretha or this series without talking fashion. I mean, the show's costume designer, Jennifer Bryan, did a remarkable job recreating Aretha's iconic style. The furs, the feathers, the handbags. Like, what insight did her style reveal to you about her life? Well, I think it's an all-encompassing thing. I think it was the hair, the makeup, the style, the clothes, the bags, all of it. I think what they actually say to me, and I, and I sort of realized this as we were doing it, is that as her life was changing, as she started to make braver, bigger decisions about who she wanted to be, her style changed. That's how it, it her style almost acts like a timeline. So if you, if you look at pictures in chronological order, you see when the shift starts happening, you know, in the 50s, late 50s, into the, the, the 60s, it's the beehive, it's the 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 inky black hair with the flick it's the black eyebrows with the frosted lip it's sort of lighter like peach clothes and then it as you get later on it starts to starts to like color starts to come in she starts to use her hair changes color she goes from the uh inky black beehive to all crop cut to uh the afro the afro happens and then she moves from the afro but that's and that's in her um young gifted in black when it's when she's deep in the civil rights movement when she really is um helping when she tries to help Angela Davis when she's working on all those things and then she moves into this red auburn Farrah Fawcett 70s look when it becomes about her really like enjoying herself and that 80s cut comes when she feels when it's just after sisters are doing it for themselves who zoom in who all of that jump and it becomes about the realization of how far she's come, what she's already done, what she's done for everybody else, and now she can have fun for herself. You see what I'm saying? And I think that that you get to watch as she's growing through her style. I think she really loved fashion. I think she really enjoyed it. I think that it was often a way to express herself in ways that she couldn't speak on. I really enjoyed feeling how it would change through the times. And it did. She was really brave with some of the things that she would wear. Really, really brave. And sort of didn't really take uh, on the rules of, of the day when it came to like wearing clothing. It was about what makes me feel good. What do I think I look good in? And I'll, I'll wear that. And it was, it's fun to look at those pictures and fun to look at how spot on Jennifer was, how spot on Terrell and Corey were with the hair and makeup of it all. I love that we get to take her into the 90s and you see that she, she shifts then and she stays very current. Uh, the later 90s is where you see the, um, it's the long hair that comes in. It becomes very demure all of a sudden. It's like, I love that you get 
the story of her through the through the clothes that she wears and the the hair and makeup decisions that she makes as well. Yeah. One of my favorite looks was that jewel encrusted gown that I think she's wearing like in Amsterdam. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite? Um, my favorite uh, is probably, it's hard to choose because they're really, really cool pieces. Okay, so there's a couple of pieces. There's the green, it's like the lime green uh, skirt and top, like tunic top with feathers on the neck when she's doing, I think it's like a convention with, uh, Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. Dr. Martin Luther King. And then there's a, yeah. it's really laid back. It's this like turtleneck, green striped long top with like these cool slacks. And she's singing um, with Curtis Mayfield. What's the song she sings? She sings, giving him something he can feel. That outfit. I just loved the way that outfit felt. <laughs> That's probably why I love it. That's probably why I love it. Yeah. There's just some really beautiful pieces. Yeah. Well, a lot of them, I felt like I could imagine seeing you wearing this stuff on the red carpet now, like so much of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've read in the past that with every part you take, it starts with a perfume. I don't know if that's still true. Like, and when did that become a part of your process? And what was it for Aretha? That became part of my process really early. I can't remember what perfume I was using for. Oh, yes, I can. Yes, I can. It was Tom Ford Noir because it was like sweet and strong at the same time, which is kind of her, really. She's got this boat, this combination of like strong and demure and graceful and sweet at the same time. She could be spiky if she wanted to, but she could also be really, really lovely. And, uh, it started when I was maybe in drama school, when I was like 23. I'm 30 now. And where did it come from, though? Like, what inspired you to think that way? I don't know. I think that I've always loved perfumes and scents. And I feel like a scent or a perfume tells you about a person and it reminds you of a person also. I think this it's the nostalgia that comes with scent. Mm-hmm. When you walk past a smell that you recognize, it takes you right back to where you were when you first smelled it. Um, not always for the better, but most of the time for, for good. And I, I think that's what I just started associating with my characters, that when I put it on, I was reminded of who I was and who I was playing and why. And it sort of like put me right back where I needed to be in the body of that person. And it might be different for everybody else, but for me, it really is like a, a real sensory recall that I get to use for, for characters. Yeah. Hmm. Well, in the early days of the pandemic, you were recording your album, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> What's the status <laughs> and, and how did your work on Genius sort of energize you as you made the album? So I started making the album... I started writing it a while ago, actually, and but I started recording it during the pandemic and finished writing it during as well. I finished recording the whole thing whilst I was shooting Aretha. So it had a heavy influence. It was also like learning, as I was learning about what else my voice could do, I was able to use this new found space that I had in my voice for the songs I was singing and songs I was making. And I guess you can't help but be inspired by the work that Aretha was doing with her music and 
and the sound and the confidence that she had to have in order to make some of the decisions that she did in order to put herself forward uh, and ask for a producer credit and all of those things. And I think that I was heavily influenced by the bravery that she had when it came to making her music um, whilst I was doing my own. The album is finished and hopefully, well, no, I know it is coming out this year. Just like playing with which date it all comes out soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another project you released during the pandemic was HBO's The Outsider. And you play Holly Gibney like this private investigator who's sort of on the hunt to solve this mystery entity or something that's killing children. Everyone thought we were going to get a season two. Were you planning on it? Like, do you know? Because I think there were scripts set. Like, do you know where things were going? I thought there was going to be a season two. It looked like all signs were pointing to yes, but that has to, that's, an H, that's a HBO question for you. Um, I know that people love this series uh, and I'm really, really grateful that people do. And I, I would love to see Holly again. Who knows, if it is in a series, maybe we'll try and find something else that feels good for it so we can like round it out and finish it off because she seemed to caught people's hearts a little bit. And I didn't realize how much I would walk through that. Like as I would walk through the, the airport when it was first airing, I, I would get stopped and, hey, that's your Holly and is it coming back? And a question I get a, a lot. So who knows? Were you surprised by how much Holly resonated with viewers? Because... I feel like part of it just from seeing the chatter on Twitter was, you know, we often in TV and film, the characters that are on the autism spectrum are often played by white men. So who was Holly to you and what was it like telling her story and having it out there like that? The representation. Holly was really special to me. I loved playing her, really loved playing with her. She kind of stuck with me because I guess I just knew it was very rare for anyone to see Black women who were on the autism spectrum being represented on screen. And I also knew that when people were represented on the autism spectrum on screen, it was often an exaggerated, exacerbated version of what actually was. And I just knew that I had a responsibility to represent those people who are highly functioning, but just function in a different way. And I looked to people who I knew in my life that were on the spectrum. I had a best friend who was severely on the spectrum, but was a brilliant mind, like brilliantly minded. I just pulled on all of those things. And I, I also pulled on the want for this woman to exceed without not being fallible like she had she had things that she had to figure out she she had quirks that she had to to work through she had issues with connecting with people that she also wanted to work out and I she's really close to my heart and I really I think she's a special special being and I think when I knew it was a special thing when parents started reaching out about her about their kids and feeling like they were finally seen. Like I'm watching this thing and I feel really seen. I feel like what I am experiencing is not um, abnormal. My kid is watching this with me and they feel like they recognize themselves. And I was really grateful for that, that input from people. I was really grateful for that encouragement 
And I hope we get to see more of it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, you know, we've been asking our guests to sort of share what TV or film they have watched during quarantine that sort of stuck out to them. You know, we've had a lot of time indoors that has allowed us to see projects that maybe we didn't have the time to see before. Was there anything that really stood out to you? Um, there were two things. Uh, I Made Destroy You, uh, written by Michaela Cole, who is a close friend of mine, and I'm just really proud of her for doing it um, and putting all of her heart and soul into it because it's incredible. And the Tina documentary, which is unbelievable. That sort of stuck with me as well. And the Audrey Hepburn documentary, which is really, really special. I didn't know about her in the way that I know about her now. Uh, and that woman led an incredible life. Yeah. When are we going to get you and Michaela to reunite on screen? For those that don't know, you were in her series for Netflix, Chewing Gum. Is there anything yeah. in the works? Can we make it happen? Nothing in the works right now. Can we add Lupita to the text chain? And Issa, can we get <laughs> this like buddy film that I need? I mean, I would, you know, I, you would have to ask me, Kate, if that girl is busy, we're both very busy and we're like, but I would love to. And here's the thing, whenever she's ready, I'm ready. Is that's the, That's the situation. But, you know, she's creator like no other. And so... It's about the timing. You know, she takes her time to write things. She really cares about what she puts forward and she takes the space and time to do so. So when she's ready, that may be for three years from now. If that's the case, I'll be there. Yeah. I'll be there too, for sure. <laughs> well, Cynthia, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yvonne, what stuck out to you about that conversation? I really liked hearing about the research portion of getting into the character. Like, I was sort of struck. I thought maybe watching the performances would really be what she focused on. But I liked hearing her talk about how much she pulled from watching Aretha during interviews and, like, seeing the way she spoke and how she spoke and her demeanor. I found that very fascinating that that really helped her sort of find her way into Aretha. Have you ever spoken with Cynthia? Uh, yeah, I, she was on a like a round table that I moderated a year ago when she had Harriet coming out. She's just a very powerful presence in a room. But I thought it was so interesting in your conversation to hear her talking about how much she sort of is still learning, how much she takes from other people like Viola Davis, Angela Bassett, Courtney B. Vance. Like it's funny that you think of someone like Cynthia Erivo as like, being pretty centered and like knowing what she's doing. So to hear her talk about like what she's still learning and drawing from other people, I found really intriguing. Well, you know, Mark, I learn a lot from hearing you and reading your stories and watching your interviews. And I'm not even joking. So stop laughing. Um, but it's true. Like we stay sponges throughout our career if we're doing things right. So, yes, I think it's great that she does that. So as I'm still learning about you, tell me what you were watching this week. I had tried an obit last week of filmmaker Monty Hellman. On the one hand, it's a tremendous privilege and honor to be the person that sort of like writes something like that, especially when it's someone like Monty Hellman, who, who's a filmmaker that I know not like a ton about, but enough to know that I, I like and respect him. And I really wanted to like do right by him. So that meant a lot to me to write that obituary. And then it got me digging back. And there was a couple of his films that I hadn't seen. His, his kind of best known film is one called Tulane Blacktop, 
that unfortunately isn't streaming anywhere. But I, as a person who still believes in physical media, like I went digging around in the drawer and found my DVD of it, rewatched that. But also a number of his films are streaming. And I watched one that I hadn't seen before that's called Cockfighter that is in fact about like cockfighting. And it stars Warren Oates and Harry Dean Stanton. And it's just a terrific, like minimalist, detailed portrait of these guys that you wouldn't normally know or see in a movie. And so I, I really enjoyed revisiting some of these films by Monty Hellman. I've got a few more I'll probably still be watching. And that was what I, I watched this week. What about you? Well, two of like the big shows that I watched over the past week are shows that are not out yet. And I really want to talk about them. One of them was Pose. I saw all seven episodes of the upcoming third and final season And I'm really interested to see how people are going to react. And there's one particular moment that I can't wait to sort of see what the Twitter reaction is. But, you know, this is going to be a little lowbrow for you, Mark, but it's the 17th anniversary of 13 going on 30. So I did watch that because I can't believe it's been 17 years. But the other thing that like has been a fun watch for me was Rock the Block on Discovery Plus. What is that? <laughs> it's this like design competition, like home makeover show with like different designers that are known on the network. It's like Nate Burkus. Well, he's not, he doesn't have a show on the network, but he's a known designer. And so it's all these different designers. They each have their own house and they each make over different rooms and compete. And it's a lot of joy for me. I just want to say, Yvonne, that we recently watched 13 Going on 30 in my household as well. I mean, I had seen the movie when it came out, had not seen it, you know, in the intervening years. I guess I'm dating myself a little bit. And it was interesting to me to sort of watch it. I think I definitely experienced it differently now than I did then. I think also, you know, A, that cast is just aged incredibly. You know, Jennifer Garner, Mark Ruffalo, Judy Greer, Annie Serkis film was directed by the late Gary Winnick, and and he brought like a, a real sort of New York sensibility to a movie that has a certain fluff to it. And so it's a, it is a really, in, you know, intriguing movie. And it's one that I think when it originally came out, it was probably dismissed mm-hmm. more than it should have been. I think it says a lot about where sort of like film criticism and journalism was at that time. But I think nowadays, the idea of a movie that is about the sensibility of 13-year-old girls, the sensibilities of 30-year-old women is much more easily, you know, accessed and understood than it was when the movie originally came out. It's such a good, good film. Like, I highly recommend everyone sort of take a moment to watch it. I remember a friend of mine who I'll just say is a few years younger than me, her mind being blown when she realized Razzles was not a made-up candy. (laughs) And I was just like, this is so sad. How old am I? But it is what it is. And now you are back in the hosting chair for the interview again next week, Yvonne. Who are you talking to? Well, we have Kate Winslet, and she plays a Pennsylvania police detective in the new HBO series, Mayor of Easttown. A lot of people are talking about that accent, Mark. A lot of people. And she may do the accent for us. I won't give too much away. But Kate told me that she finds working in television incredibly exciting now. So, sorry, Mark, we might get more of Kate on TV. You know, a film is 
an hour and 40 minutes or however long it is. And that's it. That's that's the time you get to tell your tale. Whereas with television, you know, with Mildred Pierce, five hours, with Mayor of Easttown, seven hours. And that's very, very exciting. You can really get under the skin of that character and the world that they live in, where they come from, to become part of the heartbeat of a show that involves so many moving parts, much bigger than just yourself. It's really thrilling. Well, you know, as much as I like Kate Winslet when she's in a movie like Ammonite from earlier in the year, when the television we're going to get from her means we're going to get things like Mildred Pierce or Mare of Easttown, it's a little hard to complain about it. So I can't wait to hear more of that conversation, Yvonne. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And, you know, I have to say, she actually gives her thoughts on which of her film characters would make for a good TV show spinoff. And I'm really interested to hear what people think about her ideas of who would best be suited for a TV show. But you can hear all of that when you tune in next Wednesday for that episode. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted by me, Mark Olson, and by my colleague, Yvonne Villarreal. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin. And special thanks to Mike for making our theme song. Thanks for listening and see you next week.